0: This is Hacker Mike coming at you from the darkness of New Jersey where the sun has not come up yet. It's five o'clock in the morning. I just woke up, made myself a coffee, found my shoes, and I'm out for my morning walk. This is a special time where it's just me and the stars and the crickets The solitude is very beautiful, sounds amazing, the air is fresh and crisp. And I invite you to join me on my walk this morning when we discover what's happening in the world, we clip it and analyze it together in a somewhat live stream, where I will be adding clips to this episode as we go for the next two hours. And of course, you can call in and leave me a voicemail or hit me up on chat or even join the chat live. And uh, I'll set up a bridge for you if you really wanna join. We had a guest yesterday and you're welcome to join us. So that's how it goes. This is an innovative way of broadcasting. It's not live, but it's batch segment processing. So, um, you know, that's interesting. If we had two users um, that could push segments into the same account, then um, I could upload a segment and they could upload a segment, and then uh, we could just sequence them after each other and listen to them and then add more segments in. That could be interesting but um, that might be a good addition to this tool. Or a competitor to it. (sighs) I don't know, I don't want to commit to another project, but we did have an idea of making some podcasting software. We're gonna do this step-by-step, guys. We only have so much free time, and a lot of my free time is going for walks getting my health stronger, my body stronger so instead of sitting on the keyboard I'm walking in the nature or whatever you can call this, suburbia alright then, I'm going to bring you a clip of this guy today we're going to be listening to this show Whew. and I'll give you the details Calculus Reordered, A History of Big Ideas Princeton University Press 2019 David Brissad and um, he talks about how calculus evolves <clears throat> and uh, he starts the, the show starts with a cool clip and I'm just going to bring that in its entirety and comment on it my comment is: Are people discovering the rules of mathematics, the um, incredible, um, unusual, um, the uncanny accuracy of mathematics that describes the universe? Are we discovering those things, or are we creating them? Now, Plato said that the world of ideas were buried underground. We just have to discover them. But modern philosophers say that we create them to make order out of the chaos. Now, he is of the mindset that we are discovering them as well. But is that just a viewpoint? Or is that the truth? Let's find out together and think about this together. All right.
1: I understand mathematics as the study of the deep patterns of the universe, the deep structures. Mathematics, in many respects, is is like a game where you go into it, where you don't know the rules. You're trying things out and trying to figure out the rules. And one of the beauties of mathematics, what makes it so attractive for the research mathematician, is as these rules get revealed, as you discover what can be done, what works, what doesn't work, you observe apparent patterns and try to see if if they actually are there or not. The rules that are, are revealed are so beautiful that there's a feeling of inevitability about them. And yet, it's extremely subtle. So always as you go deeper and deeper into a subject, you discover that there are aspects of it that you never would have expected, that reveal new realms to you that you wouldn't have imagined.
0: So this next clip, he's going to introduce the idea of reordering mathematics. Now I'm skipping over all of his credentials, and this guy is preeminently qualified Um, an amazing person and um, he is uh, questioning why students fail in the transition from high school to college mathematics so badly and um, he's talking about creating a need for um, a piece of learning And I absolutely agree. It's so hard in math for me personally to look at these raw subjects and then force myself to learn something when I don't understand why it's being used, where to use it, where did it come from? You know, those types of things are missing so often. And I wish that someone would actually help me understand it. Now that I'm older, I realize you have to study the history of mathematics. You have to understand how an idea was developed, the context of it, and then you can understand the need much better. But uh, if a teacher would bring that to you, it'd be amazing. And that's what it looks like he's done with this his whole new teaching book on calculus. So uh, let's see what he has to say.
1: Thank you. Yes. I've gotten very frustrated over the years observing calculus nationally, both as it's taught in high schools and also as it's taught in our colleges and universities, that so much of the emphasis is on the procedures, the techniques, a very rigid class of problems that students are taught how to solve without developing a real understanding of what calculus is about, where it comes from, how to, how to understand it in a way that enables students to, to use it freely and, and use it in unfamiliar situations. As I've learned more about the teaching of mathematics, I've been very impressed by some of the work of Gershon Harrell at, at the University of California, San Diego. And he has talked of the the importance of what he calls intellectual need, Uh, that if you want to really ensure that a student learns material well, you need to create intellectual need within those those students. Now, it could be simply a problem that students believe is important and they want to be able to solve, but more often than a a particular real-life problem it's, it's an intellectual challenge that comes out there, a, a pattern that, that grabs their curiosity and makes them want to learn more about something.
0: So it's 542. All of the stars are gone, but Venus is still high in the sky. The most beautiful star, shining very brightly. The closest planet to us. And the sun is just about to come up, and the day is about to start. Now, in the next clip, we have um, <clears throat> the discussion of partition theory, where he talks about why, uh, how many different ways can you compose a number, and then as a sum of two numbers, and then he. Says that it is a generalization of <clears throat> well that the partition theory uses elliptic theory, which is all can also be used to describe sines and cosines with two numbers. Um, and uh, the image I have in my head is an ellipse. Is um. Is an orbit with two items that are pulling on it in different ways. So I guess um, <clears throat> the partitioning of one number is being pulled on by two numbers, or two poles, and that the different sums are just orbiting around. I don't know, that's kind of the idea that I had in my head. In any case, um, he goes on to say that elliptic th- functions are derived from theta functions or can be derived from theta functions and that a famous Indian mathematical genius who a movie just came out about um, Srinivas Rama that he is um, I'm butchering his name, but that he is um, was playing with these theta functions so, I had to clip this, even though it's super interesting, but it's getting really long, so we might have to go to two clips.
1: Uh, so uh, partition theory, as as you mentioned, this is the simple question of asking how many ways can you write a positive integer as as a sum of integers? Uh, it's, it's a pure counting problem. It actually first arose in the 1700s in connection with the problem of finding roots of polynomials. But something important happened to this very simple-sounding question in the 1800s. It was discovered that there was a connection to something called elliptic functions. And elliptic functions are beautiful because of the symmetries that they exhibit. And that's one of the keys to the patterns, the beauty of mathematics, is, is all of the symmetries that are out there. And a simple example of, of symmetries that mathematicians are concerned with are Islamic tilings. So these are examples of repeating patterns that can be used to, to cover a, a, a wall or a floor. And, uh, and it's the study of these symmetries that's, uh, that gives rise, actually, to, to much of the work of of M.C. Escher. Uh, Mathematicians love love Escher and and his work because so much of it involves very complex symmetries. Uh, The wallpaper patterns that you see in Islamic tilings are a simple example of that. But they begin, these symmetries begin to get much more complex. One example which can be found in Escher's work are the hyperbolic symmetries, uh, where he has, as an example, a, a circle that's being tiled with fish that gets smaller and smaller as you get off toward the boundary of the circle, where they actually, you have infinitely many fish that are, that are touching that boundary. Well, the elliptic functions that came up in connection with partition theory, these are really generalizations of trigonometric functions. So the sine and the cosine, they're periodic. But the elliptic functions, which generalize the sine and cosine, they're doubly periodic. So they're they're functions of two variables uh, that have periodicity in both of these variables and a lot of other structure. If you think of all the identities that can be constructed with trigonometric functions, you get a much richer set of identities that can be constructed with these elliptic functions. But the study of elliptic functions was just an entry into an even more magical realm of theta functions, uh, really first developed by Jakob Jacobi in in the early 19th century. And uh, these both have the the kind of tiling symmetries, uh, but they also have a hyperbolic symmetry, this kind of symmetry that I referred to in the work of of M.C. Escher. And and the kinds of ways you can combine these and and the kinds of results that come out of them, uh, they're a play thing. And one of the greatest examples of playing with all of this structure that's hidden inside the theta functions, uh, comes out in the work of the Indian mathematician, Srinivasa Ramanujan, born in.
0: In this next clip, he talks about Ramanujan, as playing with the mathematics, and that what he discovered while playing with it <clears throat> was so significant. And um, it kind of gives you a, uh, a hope that um, mathematics as a pure functional thing, meaning something you do just for um, accomplishing a goal let's say, in a a form versus function, like reducing it down to a function, that it, um... that there is a natural beauty to things, and that we don't have to always, um... Be purely strict and functional. Let's say, um, court short about things that we can actually play with them and discover the beauty of them. So that's a uh, inspiring clip here. Let's get to it.
1: Uh, he read a lot of advanced mathematical books, but he then took mathematics off in an entirely new direction as a plaything. Uh, working with these these theta functions and, and describing what could be done with them. One of the things about beautiful mathematics, mathematicians pursue it for its own sake, but the patterns are are so so essential that sooner or later, anything a mathematician discovers that's truly beautiful will be revealed in the world around us. And today, the work of Romanogen and and the work of others on these structures of theta functions that have been playthings for a century now have real applications. But nobody went after
0: In this next clip, he's going to talk about what is calculus um, and how it actually has advanced the study not only things in the real world but also mathematical objects
1: well very simply calculus is a set of tools that are used to to understand to study dynamical systems uh, systems that are that are subject to change the first big application of calculus came in uh, in Newton's work on studying planetary motion today the tools of calculus lie behind climate change modeling, they lie behind weather forecasting, uh, they lie behind uh, the study of epidemiological models. And anything that changes, uh, whether you're looking at at the stock market, or whether you're looking at at physical phenomena, uh, trying to understand uh, the the physics of music, all of this uh, comes back to uh, the basic tools of, of calculus. I just and I, I think I'll say a little bit more about this later, but in the 19th century, calculus got much more sophisticated, uh, really began opening up windows into, into some deep structures such as the elliptic functions and the theta functions that I mentioned. And at that point, it's no longer called calculus, it's now called analysis, But calculus itself, that one-year course that's typically taught in the first year of college or the last year of high school, that's really about learning how to work with the tools that enable you to study phenomena that are changing.
0: So this next um, clip on Fermat is very interesting. And they talk about the Renaissance as the rediscovery of the ancient Greek text from the, um, Islamic text, and, well, the Islamic texts, they actually got them, I think, via the Turks, um, with the Ottoman Empire. I'm not exactly sure how the Renaissance people got these texts, and why they started to rediscover them. That's going to be another topic. But the um, Ottoman Empire wrote in Arabic, I think, and they, um, <clears throat> and they were all over Europe, and Spain, and so forth. So anyway, more, that's another topic to discuss, but now he's talking about Fermat, who was a lawyer, but he was studying math on his free time.
1: So Fermat himself uh, was, was a lawyer working mostly for the legislature in Toulouse, in, in France. He had studied law in Bordeaux, and we believe that it's in Bordeaux that he had first learned about algebra. And uh, what most people don't realize is how, in many respects, algebra was a new subject In the 16th century, now algebra has much older roots. It goes back to to Greek uh, study of of properties of of the numbers of the integers. Uh, And usually the origins of algebra are traced uh, to the the early Islamic scholars. In fact, the the term algebra itself uh, comes from the the Islamic word algebra. But in in the 16th century, tools that had been developed in the Islamic civilizations really got refined, especially in, in Italy, but also in, in France and in England and in Germany. And uh, this is, it's, it's the 1500s when mathematicians were first able to find the exact formula for the roots of a cubic or a quartic polynomial. These are polynomials of third or, or fourth degree. Now, up until the 1500s, Algebra was written out in full sentences. You didn't say x squared plus 6 equals equals 3x. You talked about the thing, writing out in full words, the thing squared plus 6 equals 3 times the thing, and you had to write it all out. And that's, as you can imagine, extremely cumbersome. So the 16th century saw a, a gradual refinement, a gradual development of what we now think of as algebra, which is all these symbols that are, that are floating around that people are learning how to, how to manipulate. So Fermat, as he was studying for the law, also in Bordeaux, was learning about algebra. And he also, at the same time, began to learn of some of the classic texts from Greek mathematics, the two books that you mentioned, the, uh, the collection of Pappas and the, the Arithmetica of, of Diophantus, um, these were written toward the end of the height of Hellenistic mathematics. So this is the third, the fourth century of, of the Common Era, beginning really right after the Dark Ages in Europe. Uh, scholars in Europe began to rediscover these old Greek manuscripts, most of which had been preserved in the Islamic civilizations. Uh, They began rediscovering them, translating them into Latin so that it was easier to work with them. And among the last of the manuscripts to be translated, this is not until the late 1500s, are both uh, the collection and the arithmetica.
0: In this next long clip... And I decided to bring the whole clip in. It's quite long. But basically, he talks about Fermat's last theory, why it's called that. And then he also says, I should separate that clip out. But he also says, if there's any intrinsic beauty in what you're studying, that it will have a use in mathematics. So Fermat's last theory, it took 100 years or so to prove it. And then, it was totally useless, but the tools that they developed to do so were very useful. And <clears throat> that's how I feel about my Introspector idea that I've been working on for so long. And it's not just the idea itself, but it's what I have developed to work on that idea. And the things that I've learned are great and eventually I'm going to share them. Now, there's one last thing that I wanted to talk about. We talked about lifting data to types and um, we're raising them up to the pedestal. And um, I think algebra is also question of raising the, um, raising the, uh, the words, so the words to mathematical formulas, to mathematics, to operations, so going from data to, to text in the computer system, like instructions or executables. is actually accepting an instruction, let's say. Now, just creating an instruction is what hackers do all the time, right? They can generate some bytecode, shellcode. I mean, there's some crazy stuff you could do with that. But the real question is, hacking into the type system and applying all the different rules of the type system against that text That's what I'm interested in. All right, let's go listen to more about Fermat.
1: Fermat's an interesting case, and I'd like to go a little further with him. As I said, he was in Toulouse. He wasn't near any other mathematical work, and he also never published anything. Um, All of his mathematics was communicated through letters that he wrote uh, especially to people like Merin-Mersenne in, in Paris, uh, but also to other mathematicians in England,
2: and in Italy, and in Germany. And then later, even through other people who were looking through his books, correct? The famous, um, the famous Fermat's Last Theorem notation in the, in the margin of one of it, his books.
1: Right. So, so this was his copy of uh, Diophantus's Arithmetica. And uh, he had gone through it and he'd made marginal notes, including what is now called Fermat's Last Theorem. He didn't publish that, but what happened was his son, after he died, thought that his father's copy of the Arithmetica with all of its margin notes was so impressive that his son got it published with the margin notes published with the text from Diophantus. And uh, so that's really what made Fermat's reputation uh, was was the publication of uh, of his copy of Diophantus together with all of his marginal notes and the story of Fermat's Last Theorem. One of the things, as I mentioned, that Diophantus talked about was Pythagorean triples, so solutions to a squared plus b squared equals c squared in integers, and uh, and Fermat had looked at this particular solution and said, uh, gee, I wonder about A cubed plus B cubed equals C cubed. Can you find three positive integers that do
2: that? Just to clarify that point, you had said a few minutes ago that Diophantus had wondered if he could find arbitrarily many solutions uh, n- to the Not problem. Diophantus,
1: but, oh, oh, yeah, no, Diophantus had found, had shown how to find arbitrarily
2: many solutions. And, okay, so he had showed how to find arbitrarily many, but... And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of what, what Fermat's innovation was, was applying the new algebra to this type of question concerning the, the relations or the structure of the integers and asking the question, is it possible to prove that there are infinitely many or or the lack thereof or not infinitely many answers to certain questions we can ask about the integers?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the the question for squares, a squared plus b squared equals c squared, that that had been actually that was solved long before Diophantus, but but he, he reproduced the, those arguments. But what Fermat did was push it a little further. Can you do it with a cubed plus b cubed equals c cubed? Can you do it with fourth powers or fifth powers or any higher powers?
2: So just just for the non-specialists, when you say a cubed plus b cubed equals c cubed, a is any integer, any whole number. B is any whole number, and c is any whole number. Is there any? Can we find infinitely many integers that we could sub in where a a cubed any integer is a plus b cubed any integer for b equals c cubed any integer for c? Is it possible that you can find three integers for a, b, and c? Where that equation works
1: exactly. So that's what 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 he asked. Uh, he decided that you couldn't, you you couldn't do it uh, with with third powers. You couldn't do it with fourth powers. You couldn't do it with any higher power. And then in the margin of his book, as as he did with many of the other things, he said, you know, I have a remarkable proof that you can't do it once you get beyond squares once you get beyond second powers but i don't have enough room here to to write out my 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 justification the years following the publication of of fermat's copy of the arithmetica together with all of his marginal notes mathematicians latched, uh, latched on to this he had Fermat had stated a lot of results inside this book. After all, these were just his personal notes to himself. He never had any intention that this would get published. Some of the things he said were correct, and people were able to prove them later. Some of the things he said were wrong, and people were able to come up with counterexamples. This particular result about A cubed plus B cubed equals C cubed or higher powers that it could not be done This was the last of the statements in Fermat's copy of Arithmetica to be decided. And that's why it came to be called Fermat's Last Theorem. Not that it's the last thing that he did or the last thing that he wrote, but just that was all that was left by about early to mid-1800s. Incidentally, the fact that it cannot be done uh, wasn't proven until 1994 uh, by Andrew Wiles. And uh, and that's uh, it's extremely complex mathematics. And one of the fascinating things about the proof that Fermat was correct, it cannot be done for powers higher than the second power. There is absolutely no use for that theorem. It doesn't help us with anything else. But the methods that had to be developed in order to prove it are so powerful that they're very useful in many, many other areas of mathematics, which is another small window into the way that mathematics works. No matter what problem you're working on, no matter how esoteric it feels, if if there's an intrinsic beauty and naturalness to it, if not the answer itself, then the process of trying to find an answer is worth the time that you put into it.
2: And this-
0: So now he goes into accumulation and saying that um, calculus started with accumulation, which is integration, before he even got to um, differentiation or the tangent, and uh, that the Greeks worked on this problem And Aristotle Aristotle said that there was no, we can't use infinity. So they had to use other things. So here we go. This is going to get deep.
1: Yeah. One of the things that really frustrates me about the teaching of calculus is how often I encounter people who've been through calculus And they think that the differential calculus is just a a set of of rules for turning one function into another function, and integration is just another set of rules for for backing this up. When in fact, the real purpose of of calculus, of both integration and and differentiation, are, are natural problems that arise. And we teach calculus as if differentiation Comes first. In fact, it's it's the integration that, that's much much older. And integration really comes out of problems of of accumulation. And uh, the right place to start is with with the Greek challenge uh, to find areas and volumes. And I'm I'm going to digress a little bit here, but I think it's important to illustrate what's going on with with accumulation or integration. Think of the formula for the area of a circle. Um, How do you get that? How do you know that the area of a circle is pi times the square of of the radius? If you take a circle, imagine a a round pizza, and uh, you cut it, say, into eight wedges, eight slices, and then you arrange these slices so that one of them has the point down and the one next to it has the point up, and they alternate in this way. Uh, So you'll have four slices with a point down and four slices with a point up. What you get is something that looks a little bit like a rectangle. Now, of course, it's it's not. The, The top and the bottom aren't straight lines at all. They're scalloped. But if instead of cutting this pizza into eight pieces, we cut it into 32 pieces and we again alternate the wedges, the slices up and down, now it's looking a little bit more like a rectangle. If we were to slice the pizza into a thousand pieces and rearrange them, now it really does look like a rectangle. If we could slice that pizza into an infinite number of pieces, it would actually be a rectangle. The length of it would be half of the circumference, which is pi times the radius. And the height of that rectangle would be the radius. And the area of that rectangle is pi times the radius multiplied by the radius, which is pi times the square of the radius. Now, this is something that was realized by very early Greek mathematicians. They knew about this formula for the the area of um, of a circle. There's a basic problem here because in getting it to actually be a rectangle, I had to take an infinite number of slices. And just as today, back then in ancient Greece, they were very uneasy about the idea of infinity. What does it mean to have an infinite number of pieces? And in fact, infinity, that concept of infinity, is so rife with with paradoxes um, that, that Aristotle banned it. He said, you can't do mathematics with infinity. Just forget about it. Well, the ancient Greeks managed to find a workaround. Uh, They managed to, to show that the actual area of the circle, through some very complicated geometric and numerical arguments, they were able to show that the area could not be less than pi r squared and the area could not be greater than pi r squared. Well, if it can't be less than pi r squared and it can't be greater than pi r squared, it's exactly pi r squared
2: what you just said you yeah
0: this next clip they're going to go from um, velocity to differentiation so they're going to talk about integration as smaller and smaller steps towards infinity to measure the the volume
1: did that to, to clarify that the next big step forward in the idea of of accumulation um, takes place in the, the 14th century with the, the scholars in, in England, in France, and in Italy, who began to study the, uh, the concept of velocity. Velocity had never really been thought of as a, as a number uh, before you, you get into the 14th century. And one of the questions that came up, you know that if, if you're walking at three miles an hour and you walk for two hours, you're going to travel six miles. Well, what if your pace isn't constant? What if your velocity is changing over this, this two-hour period? How can you find out how far you go? And the idea that, that they came up with was, well, let, let's take that two-hour period and let's cut it into to tiny time increments and assume that the, the, the speed is constant on each of those tiny in, increments, perhaps look at it at one-minute intervals and treat the the velocity or the speed as constant in each of those. If I've got a constant speed over each minute, I can figure out how far I've gone in in a given minute, and then I can add those up and get an approximation to how far I go over the two hours. Well, if instead of doing this over one-minute intervals, we take 10-second intervals, we're going to get a closer approximation. As we take more and more of these intervals, we get closer and closer until once we allow ourselves to talk about an infinite number of intervals, we'll have the exact distance uh, that gets traveled over that time. And this is a prime example of an accumulation problem that all calculus students learn about. Uh, If you know how velocity is changing, you can determine the distance that, that gets traveled. And integration was developed as a set of tools uh, to solve these accumulation problems. And uh, a lot of work done on accumulation problems, especially in the 1600s, many uh, lengths of curves, volumes. Uh, Johannes Kepler, the the famous astronomer, uh, did a lot of work early in the 1600s. He was inspired by the problem of finding the volume of a wine barrel. And uh, so so he was looking at finding volumes of various kinds of, of solids. That's integration. And it's really important for students to understand that integration is really about solving accumulation problems. The other big piece of calculus is what's called differentiation. And I refer to it as, as ratios of change, What's happening in differentiation is that you have two connected quantities. As one of them changes, it forces the other to change. And what you're interested in is how changes in the one quantity are reflected in changes in the other. And the first person to really work with this and produce a result that, that I consider to be differential calculus was an Indian astronomer around the year 500 of the common era, Aryabhata. And uh, he was working with tables of trigonometric functions, and especially tables of, of the sine function. And one of the difficulties with the sine function is that there is no way of getting an exact value for the sine of a particular angle. So what you have to do, there are a set of 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 angles for which you can compute the exact value. And so typically, a table for the sine function would have these values worked out to precision. But then if you had an angle that was between two places in the table, you needed to interpolate, figure out where in between those values it actually led. Uh, uh, a
0: question. Okay, since this is my podcast and it's a stream of random, I can randomly switch topics on you. Sorry, guys. And eventually I might take this one segment out and move it to another podcast. But today it's going in. So, a friend of mine asked me how to get started on editing Wikipedia. Or adding to Wikipedia. So here's how I would get started on adding or editing Wikipedia. First of all, you want to evaluate what's going on. So if, you, if you're if you trying to add new things to Wikipedia, like a new article, I would start with a request for article and talk to people about adding that in and try and make a case for getting it added because too often people add new articles and they get slammed and they give up. Now you are welcome to create a new article, but it's going to be an uphill battle. So, create it in your user space first under your username and work on it. And create a uh, request for article creation, maybe. And there's a whole process behind that. Um, if you want to edit an existing article, again, copy it to your user space, make those edits, make sure you have a backup of them, and maintain a copy of the article that you want to see it as. But also look at the edit history of that article and look if someone's already deleted all the content that you're trying to add in. Because a lot of times there's these people who just delete everything from Wikipedia and people have tried to add in content before and get deleted and there's some really, really nasty people on Wikipedia. And it's a very hostile environment. So don't expect the kumbaya lovey-dovey feeling. Now, if you're totally politically correct and totally mainstream and you have all the sources from the New York Times, and there's no controversy at all, and obviously if you're talking about Hollywood stuff, then Wikipedia will love you, hi, and um, they'll want you to add this stuff in because it's going to increase their ad revenue. So that's like a starting point for adding to Wikipedia. Alright, so another random topic, talking to another friend, Uh, (coughs) we were talking about parser generators and different generators for uh, things, and um, basically I was saying that um, a lot of what we do in computing is different languages, so you have some source code, and that's transformed into another intermediate language, let's say an Abstract Syntax Tree, and then that's translated into another intermediate language, let's say Register Transfer Language, and that transforms into another intermediate language, let's say Assembly, and transfer to another intermediate language, let's say Machine Code, and then that is evaluated by a computer, which basically transfers it to another language, which is like the result. So, A uh, machine code program is basically taking some input and translating that into some output, and that function is described by the machine code, which is a result of multiple transformations. So that's kind of how we're looking at um, a model of computing. All right. Stream of random for the win. So now getting back to our theory of calculus, I'm skipping over all of these details about the sine wave and how it's, what, well, basically he's saying that in the 500 after Christ AD, that the, um, <clears throat> an Indian philosopher was working, or mathematician was working on the sine function. And he came up with the definition, of differentiation as the relationship between small changes in the input to small changes in the output, or changes in the input of the sine wave, sine function to changes in the output of the sine function, and that um, <clears throat> that was the uh, the first example he saw of differentiation. So I'm going to uh, play that, and yeah. This is the stream of random, and we do get interrupted. Life happens, and we bring in other topics into our stream because this is a daily stream. This is not the edited stream. But the nice thing with this new format of clips is that um, each clip can be then transposed into a new podcast. So we have all the clips, and you'll find them actually on S3 because that's where anchor.fm stores them. So I'm pretty sure that you could actually find the individual clips if you wanted to. And maybe I'll make a show notes page with all the individual clips so you can just jump to them. All right.
1: The idea of looking at how the sine function changes as the angle or the arc length changes. What, if you're at a particular value, a small change in the arc length or a small change in the angle, how is that reflected? in the output of of that particular function and that's really what differential calculus is all about you've got two connected variables and you're interested in how change in one is reflected in change in others now when we teach calculus we usually do it in terms of we introduce differentiation in terms of tangent lines And, well, the slope of a tangent line exactly prescribes how change in the input variable is reflected in change in the output variable. But I really worry because so many students think that differentiation, if it's telling us anything interesting, it's just telling us the slope of the tangent line. And we know from studies, most students don't really understand what slope means. But I think it's, it's important to get back to the more basic understanding that what the derivative is telling us is how change in one variable is reflected in change in another. And I, I hope I haven't gotten too technical there, but, but I, I think that's really important to convey. And I really wanted to make that point very strongly.
0: In this next clip, we're going to talk about the fundamental theory of integral calculus and how it starts with accumulation and integration and not from differentiation. Now my insight is that counting by ones is a form of integration. That the one is an integral. It's like the sum of one bucket whose curve is flat. So just counting by units is an easy form of integration. So let's go.
1: Of looking at integration. We can look at integration in its its historical form as solving problems of accumulation. But what Newton and Leibniz realized is that we can actually accomplish this, find the solutions by reversing the process of differentiation. And this is why I really want to call this the fundamental theorem of integral calculus, because it says there are two aspects to integration accumulation and reversing differentiation. And even though they seem very different, they actually accomplish the same thing. And this is what's powerful. The, the term fundamental theorem referring to this result actually wasn't coined until the 1870s. I mean, people were using this this connection, but they didn't actually refer to it as a theorem until the 1870s. And when they started referring to it as a theorem, they called it the fundamental theorem of integral calculus. Uh, this has been one little historical exploration that I've done. It didn't change its name into ju- into just the fundamental theorem of calculus until the mid-1960s, when calculus textbooks at that time started shortening it in order to to make it easier, I I guess, to make it easier to to write and and put in as the the title of a chapter. But it really is about two very different ways of looking at at integration. And that's the great insight of Newton and Leibniz. One of the messages I wanted to get across...
0: In the next clip, we're talking about Taylor series or power series, which are polynomials of infinite degrees, which were leading up to the... uh, stuff that Newton
1: was working on.